Welcome to the Viewpoint Podcast with your host, Henry Grosek. Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosek. It's me great pleasure to once again, for the umpteenth time, welcome Russell Hanby, co-host for What's Making News to the program. Welcome, Russell. Thanks, Henry. How are you today, my friend? Oh, I'm good, thanks. Yes, uh, I've been keeping pretty well and healthy, so uh, fingers crossed. And how about you? Yeah, ditto. Um, and I love this autumnal weather in Melbourne when it's like this. You know, it's just uh, it's just superb. It's uh, yes. it'd be lovely up your neck of the woods. The trees would be yes. starting to the, the deciduous ones would be starting to show signs of of the mellow fruitfulness. That's, that's, r- yeah, that's, that's right, yes. In fact, they're good days and they're very cool starts, which is mm. good for getting up. And then uh, by now, this afternoon or whenever, later in the day, it gets quite warm. Yes, it's uh, you get those crisp mornings and cooler nights where you can sleep better and then it warms up. And, and there's not generally in autumn as many really windy days as you get in springtime. So there is that that really beautiful sort of um, ambience that you can have in autumn here, March and April, particularly in Melbourne. What's making news, however? There's a lot of things making news, Russ, and um, this one's been going on for some time, and sadly we can't see any sort of great ending to it. Uh, It's in the age. Sanctioned bid on Russian oligarchs with Queensland ties. It's the the uh, Ukrainian-Russian... war that's going on really. A Russian oligarch excluded from Australian penalties after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia is highly likely to be named in the sanctions regime within days amid growing concern about his stake in a Queensland refinery that supplies millions of tonnes of alumina to its Russian investors. This is part of what's going on across across much of the world at the moment, isn't it? The um, sanctions on on Russian oligarchs and also... um, cultural and sporting uh, groups and teams and individuals. It is indeed, yes. And uh, and the Morrison government is facing pressure to tighten its sanctions by naming Oleg Deripaska and Victor Vexelberg. Now, they control aluminium giant Rusal, R-U-S-A-L, and they've got a stake in a Queensland refinery that, as you said, supplies millions of tonnes of aluminium or alumina to Russian investors. Now, Mr Deripaska was added to the UK sanctions list on March the 10th, and Victor Vexelberg on March the 16th. So uh, other countries are already naming them uh, for sanctions. Now, now aluminium is a key material in the production of missiles. Now, our big company, Rio Tinto, now of that, Russell's got a 20% joint venture share. Uh, Rio Tinto is 80-20 and uh, 20% to Russell. Now, they cannot, uh, Rio Tinto cannot force Russell to share its stake without uh, Deripaska being placed on the Australian sanctions list. But they reckon they are terminating commercial agreements but the Australian corporate responsibility wants clarity from Rio Tinto that these terminating agreements do include Queensland aluminium. So uh, and Foreign Minister Maurice Payne is to consider the advice on the sanctions. So they need to be sanctioned, as it were, before a real action can be taken. Mm, and apparently uh, that needs to take place for legal reasons. Um, it's 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 part of the broader picture of uh, how to deal with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, isn't it? Uh, without ending up in an actual war or even nuclear world war. 
Yes, and we talked about it last week that mm. uh, we know Ukraine wants the, the airspace banned and wants NATO to do that, but NATO is very reluctant to look as if it's taking a part in actual fighting, doesn't it, or, uh, which uh, Russia might see as uh, definitely uh, an aggressor. Mm. And um, the, uh, the Gladstone refinery we were referring to, which produced 3 million tonnes last year of, of alumina, uh, it gives Russell the rights to 600 tonnes of alumina, which is it can be used in missiles. Uh, as Professor Stephen Hamilton, Assistant Professor Stephen Hamilton, he's an Assistant Professor of Economics at George Washington University, said, uh, quoting him, there are genuine Russian investments in Australian resources. If we're going to have any leave with, with sanctions, that's where we'll have it. And this is where all this goes back to. Um, Looking at it more broadly, um, I, I, I know that Mr. Zelensky has called for that uh, that airspace uh, block off, but it's not going to happen. He also wanted to be in NATO there, and he's now admitted that that's not going to be possible. Do you think that second measure is going to lead to anything worthwhile uh, in terms of their discussions? Will Russia be satisfied with that, or will they want more? I mean, we're talking here about where this is all heading. Yes, it's very hard to say, isn't it? And the way it's panning out, uh, I don't think Russia's going to be put off by much at all at the moment, is it, as regards the attacking on... Uh, and, of course, it's, it's the hospitals and, of course, they're showing lots of photos now of uh, children mm. being injured or killed and... Uh, it's not a good situation. And, of course, Poland's so close that uh, you wouldn't want that to happen uh, again, would you, where Poland's involved? No. Well, my father come, came from Poland and he fought in the Second World War. So clearly from that side of my family, I have a fairly uh, clear perspective on the history of uh, post-World War II Russian involvement in Poland. And most certainly the Polish people would not welcome uh, being under threat from the Russians uh, again, after what happened after World War Two, so uh, yeah, uh, Poland, uh, Poland is on on a knife edge there uh, in in how they respond because if if Russia takes control of the Ukraine, Poland's on the border, aren't they? Yes, well, already missiles have been hitting very close to the Polish border. Um, it's, it's getting a bit too close for comfort, isn't it? Really? Mm. Look, it's an amazing thing that's happened. It's just. It's been brewing for a long time and uh, in some ways it's, it's not a shock that it's happened, this, this invasion by the Russians, and yet it's, it's, it's shocking. You mm. know, and, uh, it, it's the worst time since, what, World War II? Cold War? Well, it, there seems to be lots of parallels, don't there, with those other uh, battles? Yes. Mm, mm, it's one of those ones, Russell, we, could, we watch it by the day and look, all we can do is hope and pray for the Ukrainian people and let's hope that what uh, the rest of the world, most of the rest of the world are doing starts to have some uh, traction with Russian leadership. If not, you'd hope that um, rising concern within Russia itself would, uh, more probably is the starting point for a change of policy on this um, yes, you, you do hear about fair bit of unrest in Russia amongst the people, don't you? And the, even there's the army in that. Uh, yeah, there is growing. And look, look, and we know that from our own involvement with Vietnam, and we know it from our involvement with Iraq and Afghanistan. The longer a war goes, and the longer a bo the body bags, and the more body bags that come back uh, from countries that you invade, um, the more you try the patience of your people, and eventually. You can't end up jailing all your people, can you? If they're discontented, no. you, you're going to have to change or something will have to. 
and, and this time around, it seems like it's Russia against, with a couple of exceptions, the rest of the world, isn't it? Like it's a, a massive backlash against Russia from, from most countries. Mm, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure they expected that, and I'm not sure they expected that the Ukrainian people would be so determined to protect their uh, sovereignty. Um, Herald Sun, changing topics. Russell, you're not thinking of going to the regions, are you? No, not at the moment. The, the, the national renaissance caused by tree and sea changes departing cities during the pandemic has sparked concerns of a looming housing crisis, among other fears. Yes, we've known because partly because of the pandemic has caused a lot of the people to realise they could work from home anywhere, really. So we know there's been an exodus to the uh, various uh, country places. Infrastructure Australia says that the trend is here to stay. And in the first quarter of 2021, the largest internal migration on record occurred as work from home habits became entrenched and families embraced new lifestyles. And now there are five common challenges to be addressed for the regions. Uh, They are housing. Apparently residents already there are buffeted by by affordability woes and supply constraints, which makes it hard to attract and retain workers. Uh, then there's water security for industry and agriculture, poor mobile and broadband coverage in some places, access to education and schools training, and a quality connected transport, where I think the emphasis is on the word connected. So uh, they're the main issues at the moment facing these uh, regions where people are going to. Is, um, is this a yes. case, Russell, of the grass appears greener on the other side of the fence till you get there, to use that could, metaphor. It might be. You know, you think, oh, it's a utopia over there, and perhaps it's not quite uh, like that when you get there. Yes. Look, now, I, now, I, was, <laughs> I was thinking of flooding over to um, to, to, to Ferntree Gully. Is, what's it like there? Is that better than Monturna South as a lifestyle there? <laughs> <laughs> you've got plenty of – you've got Puffing Billy up the road. Yeah, up the road, <laughs> yes, we've got that. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we've got good transport with that, yes. You can, you can, you can go on, you actually go to Jimbrook now, so that's yeah. good, yes. Yeah, well, you wouldn't, want to, you wouldn't want to come into Monturna South. I mean, that's getting closer to the hub of the city, isn't it? Yes, that is it. And, and anyway, then finally, the shift to regions means new service models that need to be developed and to have the infrastructure service comparable to large cities. So if people want to go to the country, then they're missing out on some of the uh, conveniences of the big city when they get there. Mm, so if we're going to have regional development, it's always been um, part of the challenge, and that is you've got to have forward planning and you've got to have the services and infrastructure in place, something which I, I'm not sure we ever get right uh, in the first place. Wouldn't you take a short break, Russell? Can you hold the line? That's right, yes, I can. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosek, and we'll continue with the second part of What's Making News with co-host Russell Hanby. Welcome back, Russell. Thanks, Henry. Uh, the next item, this is in the Herald Sun, and it, it, it plays to something that we often talk about, and that is uh, Australia's, uh, Australia's uh, excellent, excellent research in science and medicine. According to Herald Sun, uh, Australia to lead in drugs for cancer. Australia will seek to become a world-leading developer of life-saving cancer drugs under a $61.2 million investment in the genomic screening of cancer patients. Uh, not unsurprising given you know, the work we do and how high we, we achieve in that field, Russell. No. Well, every week we talk about uh, research or breakthroughs, often uh, in Victoria, don't we, in the medical situation. Um, now, the federal government will help fund the Australian Genomic 
cancer medical centre's $185 million project under its modern manufacturing initiative. Now, the project will use clinical and patient genomic uh, screening data from national oncology networks to drive the research and development of drugs for Australians suffering from advanced cancers. And Industry Minister Angus Taylor said the research and trials and then the local manufacture of cancer drugs will shore up our supply chain resilience. And on top of that, will create more than 200 highly skilled medical jobs. So I guess it gets a tick in many boxes. The idea is to use the research to translate those breakthroughs into genomic cancer medicines. So uh, it's a good, great breakthrough, and uh, every week we read about something new, don't we? Mm, it's great news, and um, it's 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 well, cancer is one of the fields uh, in which research is going on at a pace and needs to continue. Um, meanwhile, just slightly in in the same article, Russell, uh, they quoted new figures that show that more than 100 million telehealth consultations have now been conducted since March 2020, going back to the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, that of itself is, uh, is fascinating news. And Victoria, which had one of the longest COVID-19 lockdowns in the world, recorded the most telehealth appointments at 36.3 million. So it's a great demand for um, health services out there, isn't there? Yes. And I said, personally, I've had to use the telehealth with my uh, GP uh, more often than actually going in there in recent uh, months, you know. Often it's to get referrals or something which they can do electronically these days. In, in fact, my GP, I get the impression until recently, was more pleased to be able to deal with you remotely than have you go into the waiting room. So I think um, because, well, they were at higher risk of um, contracting COVID, it's been it's been very hard on so many levels. And, of course, in the field of medicine, we, we understand just how challenging and difficult it's been. The next one, Russell, in the age, I deliberately put this in here for you because I know you've got a long career history that's now ceased in education. That's right. It was pre-NAPLAN, which is what we're going to talk about yep. uh, from the age. NAPLAN to be held earlier. NAPLAN, the National Literacy and Numeracy Test, will be held earlier in the year to give teachers more time to act on the students' strengths and weaknesses. And uh, so uh, and they're also going to provide a uh, new testing to optional assessments for year six and ten students in science, digital literacy and civics and citizenship. They'll be introduced as well, but in that case, the results will not be reported publicly. Now, the Australian Curriculum Assessment and Reporting Authorities uh, come up with this. They're the people that run the, the, the testing. Now, a review by the eastern states argued that the NAPLAN testing should be brought forward to make results more useful to students. Currently, they're being held in Term 2, but in 2023, NAPLAN tests will be held in mid-March, round about now. The uh, Year 6 and 10 opt-in assessments, they're going to start uh, from about 2024 to 2026. Now, um, the Victorian Principals Association President, Andrew Dalgleish, said that the earlier testing meant schools could use the information earlier and be better placed to meet the needs of students. But it's not all getting a tick because the, the Australian Education Union President, Karina Haythorpe, says that uh, changing the timing of the test would not address problematic nature of the test. In fact, a 2021 state of school survey found the majority of educators and support staff believe NAPLAN is in, as ineffective, ineffective as a diagnostic tool. And you've often speak, spoken about 
too, haven't you? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I, uh, I think some of all of that's very accurate, and I think some of it's perhaps just a little severe. Undoubtedly, it, it's correct that having it earlier in the year gives you a better chance to make better use of the data. That's unquestionable because it's <clears throat> really by the time you get to use it's term three. So that's absolutely true. Andrew and Andrew Delgis, the Victorian Principal Association president, uh, echoed those sentiments and I'd completely agree with him. Corinna Hayhorp of the, um, Thorpe of the uh, Education Union, federal, federal president, is also correct in saying that changing the timing doesn't address some of the fundamental flaws. And one of those is um, its applicability uh, systemically to accurately foretell school performance. Uh, whether or not it's ineffective as a diagnostic tool, Russell, I would I'd question that because it would mean you'd have to be clear about what you mean in terms of it being a diagnostic tool. Because my view is that it is a useful diagnostic tool at the school level for some parts of literacy and numeracy. And, and I, I see that's unquestionably true. However, I think the biggest flaw of it is that it's been used too much as a tool for total school improvement and total school performance and comparative studies. On that count, uh, I think it fails, fails the test pretty dismally and it's led to a lot of unwarranted and unwanted competition between schools. Um, so it does, it's, right, it's it. useful but in a limited sense. Yeah, well, that's become a case of, uh, well, even this week, the, the news has been saying all the top schools or the most improved schools, and it's like a league tables. And and, and I guess people, parents, uh, are naturally are, uh, oh, they've got great nap plans down the road and all this, aren't they, you know? Yeah, and look, you end up teaching to the test too much. And I, one of my bugbears always, Russell, has been that, what about the rest of the subjects? When we look at school performance, we don't, put the same effort into trying to work out comparative school performance across all the other subjects. And uh, don't tell me they're not vitally important too. Um, it's not just all about literacy and numeracy. And then you've got the whole area of student well-being, which is, I think, one of the uh, soft areas of um, what in, in schools at the moment in terms of demand and need and ability to meet those needs. So we shouldn't get carried away with NAP plan and tests. No. And we've also heard about the socioeconomic uh, factor too, haven't we, mm, of the, mm, the household. Mm, mm. Mm. So, yeah, look, um, it's, it's welcome that it's in term one um, because that will help us a bit. But um, there's so much else that needs to be done too. The odd spot. I thought you'd like this one, Russell. Yes, well, Google has taken action to protect the personal privacy of pet pooches by concealing the faces of any dogs that appear in its Street View images. Now, privacy has been a bone of contention since Google Street View launched 15 years ago, prompting the tech gurus behind the website to adopt software that automatically blurs vehicle registration plates and faces even those of animals. <laughs> well, I suppose the animals um, wouldn't have thought they had anything to hide, but uh, clearly, or keep private, but clearly their owners do. So, look, in a sense, that's probably a good thing, but um, it is a funny one. Russell, you have a great weekend, and we'll catch up with you the same time next week. All right, I look forward to it. That's Russell Hanby and What's Making News. Listeners, have a great weekend. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. 
You've been listening to the Viewpoints podcast, hosted by Henry Grossick and produced by Rob Kelly. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and rate us via Apple Podcasts. 